In Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the passage that we considered last Sunday, this particular section forms the conclusion of the creation account. In that section, we observed with wonder the sovereign majesty of God who created everything outside of himself by the word of his mouth. Because God is creator of all, God is sovereign over all. To the Israelites, this would have had a very significant impact. That which the enemies of Israel worshipped, the God of Israel created. Therefore, there is no need for you, he would say, there is no need for you to be either afraid of the Egyptians who are behind you or the Canaanites that occupy the land in front of you. But there's significant application for us. Today as well, if God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, is on our side, then who can be against us? And this is the exact conclusion the Apostle Paul drew from the creation account in his great exposition in Romans chapter 8. If I am rightly related to the sovereign, majestic, omnipotent creator of the universe and everything in it, then what am I afraid of? Really? What am I afraid of? Terrorism? Economic disaster? Rejection by someone who loves you or you love them? Death? If I'm I'm rightly related to the God of the universe by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ, at the end of the day, I really have nothing to fear. At the end of the day, if I'm rightly related to God who created everything, then I really don't have anything to be afraid of. There are legitimate concerns in life, to be sure. To be sure. And I am in no way attempting to minimize the pain that's associated with disease, loss of economic prosperity, rejection, or even the death of a loved one. In no way would I minimize that pain. But at the end of the day, what do we really have to be afraid of? These and other aspects, while painful, need not be feared. The phrase that begins verse 4, and I invite you now to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. The phrase that begins verse 4, this is the account of, forms the heading for the next section that runs all the way through chapter 4. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 begins a section that runs through the end of chapter 4. The Hebrew term used here is toledot, toledot, and it's significant in that Moses uses this term to organize the rest of the book. We have the toledot here of the heavens and the earth. But later, later on in the study of Genesis, we'll see the toledots of Adam, Seth, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and then another one for Shem specifically, then Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau twice, and then finally Jacob. Each time a new literary unit of Genesis begins, we find this introductory formula, these are the generations of, or perhaps your Bible may translate, this is the account of. So as the book unfolds, we'll become very familiar with this term, Toledot. It introduces each major section. The first Toledot traces what became of the universe 
that God had created. That's what we begin today. We'll find that because of Adam's disobedience, that which was originally blessed was subsequently cursed. And decay spread rapidly throughout the human race. It's important to remember that this section of Genesis is a literary unit that runs from this location, chapter 2, verse 4, through the end of chapter 4. I'll remind you of that several times even today because that's a really critical point for understanding Genesis. Sometimes students of Genesis fail to recognize the literary divisions of the book and study particular aspects within certain literary units of the book arriving often at conclusions that are faulty because of a failure to recognize structure in a book. Oftentimes, you can trace errors in interpretation back to errors in method. And we need to make sure we understand the way this book is structured. God the Holy Spirit, working through Moses, structured it in a beautiful way, and it will help us to understand and not make these failures. One such failure is the assertion of some that Genesis chapter 2 is a separate, competing, and contradictory account of the creation account that was written. They say it was written by someone else other than Moses, and it was inserted by a later editor. So some would say Genesis chapter 1 is one creation account. Genesis chapter 2 is a separate, diverse, and contradictory creation account that was inserted at some other time by another editor. That is... An error. In this Toledot, in this section, in this section that begins, this is the account of, we do not find separate, divergent, and contradictory, uh, we don't find a separate, divergent, and contradictory account of creation, but rather, what we find in this section is an expansion on certain aspects of the account that we learned and studied from Genesis chapter 1. But more importantly, and this is huge, more importantly, Genesis chapter 2 is part of a literary unit that describes what happened to God's perfect creation. For you remember when we last left God's account of this creation, it was perfect. It had been pronounced very good, but something very drastically wrong is going to happen. And so Genesis 2 begins this literary unit that tells us what happened that was so terribly Wrong. It's, it had been pronounced not just good, not just tov, but tov meod, extremely good, at the end of chapter 1. But immediately after creation, or sometime after creation, at least by the time the Israelites had exited Egypt and were in the desert awaiting this information, something wrong has occurred. Because it's obvious that creation is no longer perfect. They're wandering in the desert they need, they need food and they need water. It doesn't sound like perfect environment. I've never been to that area of the world, at least that particular section of that area of the world in, in Sinai. But I've been close to it. And it doesn't look like perfect environment to me. I, I, I appreciate water and cool temperatures more than that. If I had to design perfect environment, it would probably be about 72, 73 for the high each day. Maybe 50, 52 for the low Something like uh, where I grew up in Casper, Wyoming. That's about what it is today. I could get my iPhone out and tell you, but I think that's about what it is. I don't think perfect environment is 96 degrees and 80% humidity, but that's just me. So I think something's gone wrong as well. 
At least that's my perception. Maybe you don't see it, but but I certainly do. And that's just the weather. That has nothing to do with other aspects at all. It's a bit short of perfection now, isn't it? But it was created perfect. How did it get imperfect? That's what this toledot, that's what this section is going to teach us. Now, in general, let me outline it just very briefly this way. Chapter 2 begins the account of what happened. It just begins it. Moses swings back in this chapter and expands upon the earth's preparation for man, which we saw occurred on day 3, remember? And then fills in some of the information about the creation of the man and the woman, describing the responsibilities that God gave Adam and the woman, Adam and Eve, for reverent service and obedience. So this chapter is going to set up how it ought to have been. God provided everything that they needed, and he provided the boundaries for them to operate within. At least that's what we're going to see in chapter 2. But in chapter 3, and most of you that have been studying students of the Word of God for any length of time, and all know that Genesis chapter 3 is one of the key chapters in the Bible because something terrible happens. In fact, probably the most terrible thing that has ever happened in human history happened in Genesis chapter 3 because the man and the woman failed miserably in their responsibility to serve and obey. And then it describes in Genesis chapter 3 the ramifications of that failure. So you see where we're going. Genesis chapter 2, this is, the, this is the tremendous provision that God made. And then he set up the rules. Genesis chapter 3, they disobeyed. They broke the rules fairly quickly. And then in Genesis chapter 4, we see the fact illustrated that they had disobeyed. That the fact is illustrated that the results of that failure are not restricted to Adam and Eve. But they extend to us as well. They extend to the progeny of Adam and Eve. So you see again, Genesis chapter 2, this is all one literary unit. And this is going to help you fight off some of the nonsense that you may hear on television, that you may hear in some other areas. That Genesis 1 and 2 are contradictory accounts, so let's just throw this Bible out. It's just a mixture of, it's a hodgepodge mixture of things that were added at various times. That's not true. We need to be careful as we study. Genesis 2, what happened, or at the beginning of what happened, it was perfect. God created day, on day 3. It expands on how he, he created the earth with vegetation. Then on day 6, it expands on what he does with the creation of the man and the woman. Chapter 3, we learned that they failed terribly. And then chapter 4, we see that that failure was not restricted to them, but it extended to their progeny. In case you're wondering, you and I are part of their progeny. If we are careful with the structure of the text, then we won't make mistakes like thinking that they're two separate and contradictory accounts. They are not. I stress this, especially for those in college or who are about to be in college. I remember a world history class that I took at at LSU my freshman year where the professor stressed this contradictory nature of Moses' writings, particularly went right straight off the bat to Genesis 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And he begins his whole lecture series with the idea that the Bible is full of contradictions. He started with that. That was the very first lecture. At the time, although I had been a Christian for many years, actually, as far as I can trace back, I've been a Christian since I was seven years old. I trusted Jesus Christ at that time to forgive my sins, to grant me eternal life. I wanted to go to heaven. And so I had been a Christian for a long time, but I had not carefully studied Genesis by that time. And frankly, I was in no position 
to defend myself, my view, or the scriptures from this learned man who was the professor and who had a Ph.D. and he should know, right? I mean, if, that's, if he says it, he should know. I wish I could get a hold of him now. <laughs> but, but at the time, I, I was defenseless. Listen, my friends, there's a reason why, according to a recent Barna study group research project, that 61% of college students become spiritually disengaged in their early 20s, abandoning church attendance, Bible study, and prayer. 61% become spiritually disengaged. There's a reason for that. Churches have spent a great deal of time and money and energy on recreation for our youth and not nearly enough on education for our youth. And it's not worked. 61% is a terrible number. Our kids need to be carefully educated in God's gracious self-disclosure in the Scriptures, and they need to be carefully educated in the defense of the Christian faith. Not to help them win an argument, because they need to know how to think critically so they can discern falsehood from truth. All I want is the truth. I'm not here to brainwash anybody. But I don't want somebody else brainwashing other people as well. And listen, I've got to tell you, sadly, we've had folks that have left our church in times past, in years past, and gone on to college and have lost their faith. That's why we made some changes around here a few years ago. That's why dance class is so important for these kids. We start with education and then bring recreation in as well. But there's been too much time spent at the bowling alley in churches and not enough time in the Word of God in churches. Not enough time in Christian apologetics. Now, a lot of us grew up in the 50s, in the, in the early 60s, in the 40s, where it was just assumed that God existed. Listen, my friends, that assumption is not out there in academia anymore. And people were evangelized for the view of atheism just as strongly, or sometimes more strongly, than they evangelized for the view of theism. That's why our teen or college age class is first best based upon education and secondarily on recreation. Yes, they have a great time. Yeah, they go to the bowling alley. They have pizza. They have barbecues. They have a great time. They get together. But their, their focus, their fellowship is based first and foremost on the Word of God and on defending the Christian faith. I find it encouraging, by the way, that the Southern Baptist Convention has also identified this problem. And they've become a massive, a massive program to overhaul their youth groups. And they've also become a, begun a massive program to train new leaders in Christian apologetics to work with those youth groups. And I think that's a move, certainly, in the right direction. Well, would you read with me the rest of chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. So we see, we won't cover all of this today by any means. We'll just cover a few of these verses. But I want you to get the flavor of the entirety at this point. This is the account, beginning in verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, and the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then in verse 7, 
Then the Lord God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord caused to grow every tree pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good, and Bedellum and the onyx stone are there. And you thought I was going to mess up that Bedellum, didn't you? Actually, I, I did too, but I practiced it. And the name of the second river is Gishon, and it flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the garden to cultivate it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. For the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him or corresponding to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and all the birds of the sky and every beast of the field. For Adam was, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. And the man said... This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this cause, a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. The expanded account of creation of the man and the woman in chapter 2 explains that human beings have the capacity and the responsibility to obey and to serve their Creator with integrity. Man was placed in perfect environment with every provision needed to serve God, including a corresponding partner to team with him in the endeavor. Well, this morning we'll only cover these verses 4 through 7. Let me look at this again. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. Again, please, this is the third time, but I wanted to do it so we would not walk away from this particular session forgetting this. Verse 4 serves as the title of the section that will begin here and run through chapter 4. This is no trivial detail. It's critical for our perception of how Moses framed this book under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and our understanding of how we can then comprehend the message of the section and apply it to our lives. These are some of the most important chapters in the Bible. The Old Testament scholar Walter Kaiser says, in order to understand the New Testament, 
We must understand the Old Testament. We must have a basic understanding of the Old Testament. And in order to understand the Old Testament, we then in turn have to have a grasp of the book of Genesis. And then he said, in order to understand Genesis, we must be thoroughly familiar with its first three chapters. So I'm going to make sure, or do my best, to make sure that as we go through these chapters, we have a thorough understanding here. Immediately, we notice here a shift in the way that God himself is presented. Up until now, he has been referred to just simply as Elohim, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim, God, created the heavens and the earth. But now Moses shifts to a more personal title, Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. There's also a subtle shift in verse 4 in the word order. Let's see if you can pick it up. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord made the earth and the heaven. Did you pick that up? I hope so. There's a shift in the order there, a subtle shift. In the beginning, we read that this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they are created. At the end of the verse, we find the order reversed. In the day that the Lord made the earth and the heaven. It's as if there's been a shift in perspective now. From looking from the outside in, from the far reaches of the universe down to this little tiny living planet Earth, this privileged planet Earth. But now we look at it from the Earth's perspective, and we'll begin to see things on a more uh, specific nature rather than the generals. We'll see the particulars. So the perspective of the Earth to the universe is now the, the uh, item for the day. In verse 4, the Hebrew term yom the word for day, in the day that the Lord created it, is not used, obviously, of a single 24-hour period, but it speaks of the entire week of creation here. Verses 5 and 6. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God, you see the personal name again, had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Verses 5 and 6 provide um, the setting for creation of human life, giving us an expansion and further details on what happened on day 3. Do you recall as we begin studying this in, in terms of the days of creation, what happens on day 1 corresponds to what happens on day 4. What happens on day 2 corresponds to what happens on day 5. What happens on day 3 corresponds to what happens on day 6. Chapter 2 is going to pick up that final couplet, days 3 and 6, and how they're related to one another, and it's going to expand upon that. As we've previously studied, there is great debate about the length of the days of Genesis. And this verse, or these two verses, are often used by those who take the view that a longer period of time is in view in Genesis rather than just 24 hours. Because verse 6 appears to describe a customary act, something that was customary for it to occur. It appears to do that in verse 6, but a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. That's, that's one of those verses that people use to say, well, it had to be a longer period of time. But since we've studied that at least on two different occasions, I won't revisit that because I want to spend the remainder of our time today on verse 7. 
But verse, verses 5 and 6 go back to day 3. They expand a bit on what occurred on day 3 as God is preparing the earth for the occupation of mankind. Now verse 7, a well-known verse. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then the Lord God formed. This is the word yatsar, one of those Hebrew words for create that we studied a few weeks ago. From that, he yatsard, he formed the man out of the dust of the ground. This term yatsar emphasizes that when he did that, there was design in his mind. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't random. And it wasn't the result of some imaginary force called natural selection. And I do mean imaginary force. There is no such thing as natural selection. That's an imaginary idea. The term Yatsar emphasizes that the creative act was by design. All of God's creation is a work of art. But the creation of mankind is the greatest work of art that has ever been produced. Nothing comes close. The human body is a work of art on God's part. I remember being at a conference one time where a well-known physician was speaking, and he said, you know, I just can't, I just don't understand anybody who's familiar with anatomy and physiology being an atheist. He said, every time I, every time I dig further into the deeper or deeper into the study of the human body, it makes me realize more and more God created this. God created. If you knew, I don't want to scare some of you, but if, but if you knew what a thin thread your life hangs by right now, if, if nothing else, just because of the, mechanism, the internal mechanism within the heart, I don't want to tell you about it because it might scare you. You have a heart attack right now. It's hanging by a very thin thread, and God holds that thread. He created you. And it's a good thing he did. But in addition to stressing the fact that human beings are a work of art, there are other things that are going on in this passage. Then the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. By the way, I, I, I do believe, I can't pass this by, I do believe, I do believe that aesthetics can be quantified. Qualified and quantified. It's not simply a matter of taste. I'm sorry, but it's not. The more a work of art, like the human body, reflects the glory of God, the greater it is as a work of art. That's, that is the truth. A crucifix in a jar of urine or a portrait of Mary with buffalo dung thrown upon it may be called art, but it could be never, it could never ever be called good art. Not by any sane human being. So I had, to, I had to get that. It does not reflect the glory of God. The closer a piece of art comes to reflecting God's glory, whether it be traditional, classical, or contemporary, it doesn't matter to me, but it, if it doesn't reflect God's glory, it's not a work of art. And with all due respect to the National Endowment for the Arts, a portrait of Mary with dung thrown on it is not a work of art and is personally offensive to me and ought to be personally offensive to anybody who pays taxes in this country. That's the end of that. I better move on or I'll have a heart attack right now. <laughs> now, stressing the fact that human beings are a work of art, there's an emphasis here on the fact that we are tied in some way to the earth. Did you see that? In some way we're tied to the earth because it said he formed us from the dust of the ground. 
the Lord God used dirt to form us. Now that humbles me, but it excites me too. If he could use dust to form us, to create this incredible work of art, think what else he can do. And he's demonstrated that as well. And the Bible also says that when we die, our bodies will return to dust. So there is some sense that Moses is introducing here in this chapter that in some sense man is tied to the earth. We'll see it more in chapter 3. But in the meantime, we, we live our lives out from the point that we're created, at least Adam was created, the point that we're born to the point that we die. We live on the earth. We till the earth. We get our food from the earth. We're tied very closely to this aspect of God's creation. But this body is not simply dust. It doesn't leave it there. If it, if it left it there and that was the end of the, word, of, the, of, the, of the scriptures, then we'd be perplexed to be sure. But there's something very special that happens here in verse 7. We're a special aspect of God's creation. The Shema, translated the bread of life, is something that only human beings have. Animals possess life, but they don't possess this. The Bible never says that, the, that animals possess this Shema, this bread of life. The Shema is given to us by God. And apparently it carries with it his image. And we've studied that before back in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then the Lord God said, or then God said, excuse me, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And he created, and God created in his own image, in the image of God, he created him Male and female. Now listen, we may treat people like they're dirt sometimes. We may treat people like they're just animals sometimes. But to God, human beings are not. Human beings are special. He breathed life into them. It was a special account. It gives human beings their special value. All human life should be valued. It should be valued. In fact, all life is valuable. But human life has special value before God because God personally breathed life into Adam.